Well, good morning. It is a privilege to be with you all again. Uh, I bring greetings from Jefferson Park Baptist Church in Charlottesville. Uh, please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8, and we're going to be focusing on verse 58 this morning. Uh, and let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we can indeed only imagine uh, what it will be like uh, to see you on that final day. God, we pray now that you would open our eyes to see Christ, that even as we here and now turn to your word, that you would show us more of Jesus, that we would see him and behold him as he is, that we might love him and trust him and know him more. God, be with me, I pray, that I may preach your word faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, as you are uh, turning to John 8, I'd like to begin by uh, telling you about a uh, little YouTube video I watched recently. Uh, it was by this young man who was interested in how homeless people are treated. Um, he said that he knows homeless people, and they often tell him that people just treat them different not like human beings. Uh, so he decided that he was going to do an experiment. Uh, and he dressed like a homeless person, and he went to this relatively nice restaurant to, to try to eat there. Uh, and he was turned away at the door. Uh, interestingly, they didn't you know, cite a dress code or some policy. Uh, they just immediately were like, no, sorry, you, you can't eat here. Uh, and then, you know, and there's a video of this, so he, you know, he's kind of pleading with them, and, and you know, another guy's like, yeah, you, you don't have the money. He's like, no, I do have the money. I, I really do. And, and you know, they, they refuse to listen, and they, they send him away. Uh, so then he, he leaves, and he comes back about an hour later, and he's changed, and now he's wearing nice clothes, and he drives, you know, a, a nice car, and this time, as soon as he pulls up, you know, they come out the valet service to take the car, they offer him a menu, and, you know, there's just this warm, welcoming, ready to receive him. Uh, and it's at this point that he begins pressing, like, so really, you're inviting me in? And he's like, well, I was just here an hour ago, and you said I couldn't eat here. You know, what's going on? And, and then, you know, the, the confusion of the, you know, the people greeting him and the waiters, and, and they you know, he says, I'm the same man. And they begin to recognize, oh, this is the guy that we turned away. And at this point, uh, of course, they're deeply embarrassed and they begin apologizing profusely uh, and yet it's too late. Um, and, and I bring that story up because it certainly illustrates uh, one of the dangers of misidentification. Uh, and it also illustrates the fact that very often, the judgments we make about the identity of others actually reveal much about the true state of our hearts. Uh, and nowhere is that more profoundly the case uh, than in what we make of Jesus Christ. Uh, our judgments about who He is uh, says nothing about the reality of his identity, but it says much about our hearts. And no one has made more remarkable claims about his true identity than Jesus. 
Uh, And so with that in mind, we are going to turn to John 8, uh, where we see uh, one of the most remarkable claims of Christ. And we see the response of the world. In fact, the response of His own people in one sense, the, the Jewish people, and how they judge these claims to be erroneous and false and thereby betray uh, the evil that lurks in their own hearts. Uh, so, uh, with that said, let's first uh, consider the setting. Uh, so we're going to kind of build our way up to this, uh, to John 8.58, uh, just looking at a little bit of the background, what's going on in, the, in John's Gospel. And a good label or title for this section is Escalating Tensions. Uh, so the setting, Escalating Tensions. Um, now, Thus far, if you were to just start reading through the Gospel of John, uh, you would see these escalating tensions between Jesus and the Jews, uh, and especially the leaders of the Jews uh, and those who are in Jerusalem. Um, we could go back to, to John chapter 2, uh, when this really begins. Jesus goes to Jerusalem and he comes into the temple and he sees you know, the, the money changers you know, trying to profit, um, selling things, and, and all of this going on. Um, rather than God's house being a house of prayer, here it is, a den of thieves. And so Jesus starts flipping over tables. He makes a whip. He drives people out. And the response, people say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Uh, and Jesus, of course, responds, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Uh, and then uh, in John 5, Jesus is back in Jerusalem. And on this occasion, there's a, a lame man at the pool in Bethesda. And this is a Sabbath day. And you know, he wants someone to help him down into the water. And Jesus comes and simply heals him. And in response to this miracle, uh, the Jews begin to persecute Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And then Jesus responds by saying, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. And then John comments, This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him, because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. So you have these claims of Christ, and then this rising opposition, these escalating tensions. And then we come to really the beginning of the section that that we're in, uh, which is in John 7. Uh, And there's the Feast of Booths. Uh, So this is one of the three big feasts in Judaism. They'd they'd all come up to Jerusalem three times every year. Uh, And and this feast was in September or October. And it's taking place about six months before Jesus is crucified. Uh, And so at this point, John notes... Jesus is already avoiding Judea because the Jews there are seeking to kill him. Um, And then Jesus' brothers back home, they say, well, Jesus, aren't you going to go up to the feast? If you want to be known, you should go. And Jesus tells them, well, I'm not going up now. And then, um, so the feast begins and everybody's kind of whispering, you know, where's Jesus? They've all heard about him. They're, They're wondering where he is. And then suddenly in the middle of the week, in the middle of the feast, Jesus shows up. And he's in the temple, and he starts teaching. 
Uh, and this, back at the beginning of John 7, begins this whole series of conversations over the next few days that culminate in what we read in John 8.58. Now, one of the things we see in these two chapters, John 7 and 8, is that there are these divided responses to Jesus and his teaching. Uh, There are people who marvel at what he's saying, and they're thinking, you know, this is a great prophet. Others are saying, no, this, this could be the Christ. And then some are like, but wait a second, the Christ is supposed to be born in Bethlehem, um, but Jesus comes from Galilee. You know, they obviously don't know the, the history. Um, and then there's the chief priests and Pharisees who want Jesus arrested. So they send officers to go arrest him, uh, and then later the officers come back, and they don't have Jesus. And the Pharisees are like, where is he? And the officers respond, no one ever spoke like this man. Uh, So they themselves are just awed at what Jesus has to say. Um, And yet, the chief priests and Pharisees are all the more um, focusing on how they can uh, oppose him. So, what is it exactly that Jesus is teaching? Um, Well, if if just based on John 7 and 8, the focus of his teaching seems to be on who he is and the exclusive authority he possesses to grant life. So, for example, in chapter 7, verse 37, Jesus says, um, this is on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Then in chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Then in verses 23 and 24, Jesus says, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. At this point, people are responding who are you? Who is this? Then in verse 51, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And at this, the people respond, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? And then Jesus responds in verse 56. He says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And then they respond, You are not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? What are you talking about? Who do you think you are? And then in verse 58, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And at this point, they pick up stones to throw at him. Literally right there in the temple, which apparently was under construction, so there would have been stones and debris around. They've been working on this thing for like 46 years. And at that moment... When Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. At that moment, they 
pick up stones and they are ready to throw them at him and somehow Jesus hides himself and escapes. But what I want to do is kind of circle around and ask, so what is it exactly that Jesus is saying? And why is it that after all the incredible claims he's made about who he is, it's at this point that the Jews pick up the stones and are ready to stone him to death? What exactly is meant? Before Abraham was, I am. So what I want to do uh, to really understand that is to talk about some background. So we've seen the setting, the escalating tensions. Now I want to think about the background, which is this. God is the I am. Uh, And so let's just imagine for a minute, if you could go back then or or even now, if you were able to talk to a pious Jew, and you ask that Jew, um, who is God? What would they say? Um, Well, the, the most sacred thing to a pious Jew is the covenant name of God. Uh, You could ask them, well, what is that name? And he won't tell you because they will not say the name. They are that careful. You know, they do not want to risk taking the name of God in vain. And so they will not even speak it. Um, In fact, when the Old Testament was written, this name was abbreviated. And the abbreviation has become known as the tetragrammaton. And that's just a big word that means the four letters. Um, And even now, there's debate about how to pronounce it. They seem to have just taken the vowels out and put these four letters, and that's the name. Um, And when a Jew would read the Old Testament, they would come to the tetragrammaton, and they don't pronounce it. They will say Adonai, which means Lord. Uh, And in fact, that uh, custom has carried over into English translations as well. And so when we read the Old Testament, you'll come to a lot of places where it says LORD in all caps. That is the tetragrammaton, and we have just put LORD in there. But probably the the best way to pronounce that would be Yahweh. Uh, That's the, the best understanding that scholars have for how to say it. Uh, and once you recognize that and you start looking for where the you know, Lord in all caps in the Old Testament, you will see it all over the place. It, occur, it occurs more than 5,000 times in the Old Testament, and it is the foundation for almost everything. Uh, so, for example, the Ten Commandments begin, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Uh, or Psalm 23, Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Uh, Or Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. But those who hope in Yahweh will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. And so on. It's Yahweh. That's the name. Uh, so, um, So the sacred covenant name of God is Yahweh. But where does the name Yahweh come from? Uh, Well, turn with me briefly to Exodus chapter 3, and especially verses 13 and 14. Uh, And this is the burning bush passage. So God appears to Moses in the burning bush, and he's calling him to go and lead his people um, out of slavery in Egypt. And of course, Moses responds with lots of, 
you know, questions and excuses. And one of those, in verse 13, is when Moses says to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, and notice that's all caps, that is Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And so what we see, God is the I am. That's what he says my name is. It's I am. But then he turns around and he gives a personal name. Yahweh. Yahweh is the personal name connected to it. In fact, the the word Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton, is grammatically related to the Hebrew word to be. Uh, And so we see this connection between Yahweh and God being the I Am. So if you're going to ask a Jew, who is Yahweh? The first thing they think, He is the I Am. That's who God is. Uh, Now briefly, Uh, Let's consider what does it mean that God is the I Am? What does that mean? Well, we could spend hours contemplating the significance of that. Uh, I think it's been well said that the name conceals as much as it reveals. Um, But here are two key things. The first is this. God being the I Am teaches us that there is only one God And he is utterly unique. Uh, Notice that God defines himself in terms of himself. Who are you? I am who I am. Right? If someone were to come, say a Martian were to come down and ask me, well, who are you? I could say, well, I'm a human. You know, I could point to other examples of humans, and I could say I'm a man, and I can point to other examples of men, and I'm a Caucasian, and I can point to other examples of Caucasians. I would identify myself by the classes and the categories that define me. And yet here is God, and Moses says, well, you know, what's your name? And God says, I am who I am, because he is in a class and a category all by himself. He is utterly unique. He's one of a kind. He is the one and only. And that uniqueness is also, it's defined by the fact that He is the I Am. That He has life and being and existence in and of Himself. He is the independent one who needs no one, who needs nothing. He's the eternal one. You know, He's not the God who is becoming the God who became. He is simply the God who is, who always was, who always is, and always will be. He is eternal and immutable. He's unchanging. He is the I Am. So there's only one God and He's utterly unique. But then secondly, this name, God being the I Am, 
He is revealing Himself as the faithful, covenant-keeping Redeemer of Israel. You see, He is giving them this name, this covenant name, in the context of redeeming them from slavery in Egypt. And in faithfulness to the promise that He made to Abraham. He is revealing His character through His actions. Through His faithfulness. Uh, And that's why later when Moses says, you know, show me your glory. And God will pass before. And it says, Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Right, So who He is is tied to His character as expressed through being the Redeemer of His people and the faithful God. So, I go into all that background to emphasize that if you're a Jew, you know that there is one true God. The God who appeared to Abraham. The covenant-keeping God. The God whose name is Yahweh and who is the I Am. That is the background. God is the I am. Now, let's turn back to John chapter 8 and look again at verse 58. And we're going to look at this claim of Jesus, right? That Jesus is God. So Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And notice, it's not merely, well, I'm greater than Abraham because before Abraham was, I was. I mean, that would claim pre-existence, which would still be an audacious, amazing thing to claim. But Jesus goes far beyond that, and he says, before Abraham was, I am. Right, which is grammatically <laughs> wrong, unless... You are claiming to be the I Am. You are claiming to be God Himself. And that is exactly what Jesus is saying. Before Abraham was, I am because I am Yahweh. I am the God of the Old Testament. I am the one true God. And I share the attribute of eternality which the one and only self-existent God possesses. Before Abraham even existed, I am because I am the God who chose Abraham and promised to bless him. It was me in whom Abraham placed his faith and trust. Jesus is saying, I am the God who appeared to Moses in the burning bush and revealed myself as Yahweh. He's saying, I am the God who brought Israel out of Egypt by my mighty right arm and commanded them the law from Sinai. And now he's saying, and I am that God who has now come to again redeem my people. This time not from Egypt, but to redeem them from sin. Right? And that's why earlier in John 8, in verses 34 through 36, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. But if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And that's why he says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day 
And he has seen it and is glad because he is the I am. And so just consider for a moment who it is that the Jews are arguing with. Right? Again and again, in John 7 and 8, you see Jesus declaring with authority who He is. And then these Jews come, and they take issue with what He's saying. And they say, well, prove it. You know, how do we know you're really who you claim to be? And yet the whole point is, Jesus is the I Am. There is no higher authority. There is no other standard. He is the standard. His word is the truth. I was wrestling with how to think of an illustration of this, and the best I could come up with was, you know, imagine you've got these scholars on Shakespeare, and they're debating, you know, what did Shakespeare really intend, you know, with this character in the story? What's the real meaning? And imagine Shakespeare himself coming up and talking to them. And he says, this is what it means. And they start arguing with him. As it, Who are you? How do you know that's what it means? Can you prove it to us? They're arguing with the I am himself. They're arguing with the standard himself. And that's why he says in verses 46 and 47, if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So that is the claim of Christ. He is the I Am. He is God Himself. Well, let's turn next to the choice. The choice that is set before them, and that is the choice of worship or stoning. One of the things that we see in verse 59 uh, is that the, the Jews clearly understand Jesus' claim. There's a lot of places in Scripture where people misunderstand Jesus, but this is not one of them. You know, they understand exactly what Jesus is claiming. They understand He's claiming to be God, and this forces them to one of two choices. Either they can fall down and worship Him, as the God he claims to be, or else they must prosecute him as a blasphemer. He's either God or he is a blasphemer. And according to Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16, it says, anyone who blasphemes the name of Yahweh is to be put to death. The entire assembly must stone them. Whether foreigner or native-born, when they blaspheme the name, they are to be put to death. What we see here is that the people pick up stones because to them, the choice is clear. They already hate Christ. They've already been looking for an opportunity to kill Him. And now, you see, I don't think it even crossed their minds, well, oh, maybe He's God. No, what's crossed their minds is now we have an excuse to kill him. Now we can accuse him of blasphemy with such clarity that we can just pick up stones and kill him right here in the temple itself. And what I want us to reflect on here is the fact that Jesus' claims force us into this kind of polarized choice, this kind of polarized response. Jesus has no interest in winning a following. You know, he doesn't want a fan club. He demands 
absolute loyalty and worship. We see this first back in John chapter 6 when there are many people following Jesus and Jesus proclaims, I am the bread of life. And some of them take issue with that. And rather than sort of accommodating their you know, questions about that, Jesus presses it even further and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And it says, then many of Jesus' disciples turned back and followed him no more. And then similarly, right here in John 8, if you look back at verses uh, 30 and 31, you know, in this in these series of conversations going on around the temple this week, um, it says in verse 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Many people heard what he had to say and they thought, wow, this, this man must be the truth. And then in verse 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. And what you see is that those who profess belief in Jesus, then come, are confronted with more and more of the claims of Christ and they shift to the place of picking up stones to kill Jesus. Because Jesus is not satisfied with a superficial belief. He's not satisfied with people who just want to sing His praises. He says, if you are truly My disciples, then you will Abide in my word. You will give me absolute and final allegiance. And so friends, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, uh, the point is there can ultimately be no neutrality between you and Jesus. Right? Jesus claims to be God, your maker and sustainer and owner. And if that's true, you owe Him loyalty, worship, and obedience in all of life. And anything less than that, even saying He's a really good man and I really admire Him, is still rebellion. And that is why Jesus warns, unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. And also why He promises. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps My word, He will never see death. So, we have this choice. Well, finally, I want us to consider the challenge. And the challenge is this question, do we really love God? And I think that kind of flies beneath the surface of this whole passage because it's important to consider that all of the Jews here, even the ones who picked up stones to throw at Jesus, would have adamantly professed to love God. They were convinced they did love God. And yet the sad irony is how terribly wrong they were. 
In fact, it's no accident that following John 8 is John 9, which is about Jesus healing a man born blind. And at the end of that passage, Jesus says, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And so what about us? How do we know that we see? How do we know that unlike these Jews who said they loved God and yet hated Christ, that we love God? Uh, Well, I'd like to give us uh, three tests. And the first is, is very obvious and straightforward, and it's this. Do you love God's Son? Right? This is the um, clear and obvious test. If Jesus is God, then what we think of Him is what we really think of God Himself. Right? And, and that's why um, in 1 John, he says, anyone who denies the Son does not have the Father either. That's why we would not recognize Jehovah's Witnesses as one example who deny the deity of Jesus as Christians. Um, But I think this can challenge us in more subtle ways as well. Um, I had a conversation recently uh, with a woman uh, who has apostatized. One time she professed to be uh, a a conservative Christian, believing in in Jesus just as as we would. but then she said, you know, one day she just kind of woke up and she no longer believes that Jesus is God. And she no longer believes that the Bible is God's Word, no longer believes in heaven or hell, and yet she does still believe in God. And she does still pray to Him. And what, one of the things that struck me about that is how does that happen? How does somebody go from being a Christian, a professing Christian one day, to suddenly denying that Jesus is God while still professing some sort of faith in God. And it makes me wonder, like, what did you believe about Jesus before? And how central to your understanding of who God is was Jesus to you? Uh, you know, it, it raises this question like, how central to our Christianity is Christ Himself? Um, you know, how much do we really love Jesus? Because that is what most directly reflects our love for God. Right? And so if you're here and you love the Lord, one of the evidences of that will be a love for Jesus Christ. And to the degree that that in your heart you say, yes, I love him. Well, then let's be spurred on to look to him. Uh, Remember, God is the I am. And that name conceals as much as it reveals. But in Jesus, the I am is made visible. Right? Jesus is the word who was made flesh and dwelt among us so that we might behold his glory. Um. Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. He is the brightness of the Father's glory and the express imprint of His nature. Uh, And in Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So brothers and sisters, as as we think about the fact that Jesus is God Himself, let's be encouraged to return afresh to reading the Gospels and just meditating on the person of Christ. And just thinking about who our God is and how He has revealed Himself so gloriously in Jesus Christ. 
Um, let's determine, like the Apostle Paul, to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. And what things were gained to us, let, let us count them loss for Christ, that we may be found in Him and know Him. So that first test, do I love God? Well, do I love God's Son? Second test, do you love God's glory? Uh, you know, it's very interesting. We looked before at earlier in chapter 8, verses 31 through 33, where these Jews profess faith in Jesus, and Jesus responds to them, well, if you're really my disciples, you'll abide in my word, and I'll set you free. And they seem very offended that Jesus would imply that they need to be set free. In fact, they say, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Now, that's one of the most shocking, strangest statements to come out of the mouth of Jews, whose whole national history, the most central event that has ever happened, was them being redeemed from slavery. And yet, they seem to just, that's nowhere on the forefront of their mind. They really like to talk about, we are the descendants of Abraham. We have this sort of credential, this genealogical status. We are God's chosen people. We are really special. But they don't really like to think about, yeah, we were slaves in utter dependence on the grace of God to bring us out. And they have no recognition, and we are still slaves to sin, and we need a Savior. And, and one of the things that I think we learn, um, you know, if you love God, there will be within you this inner sense that it is good and right for God to receive all the glory. This recognition, in this world, all things are really about Him. And with that comes the humility and the willingness to acknowledge your own sin, your own failure, and your need for a Savior. And then a readiness to boast of the grace of God. How He is a God who reaches down to save weak and undeserving sinners like us. You know, that is a mark of someone who loves the Lord. There is this joy in boasting of God and who He is. Uh, this love to give God the glory that He deserves. So, do we love God's Son? Do we love God's glory? And then third, do we love God's law? Uh, now, we've talked a lot about just this emphasis on His Word, and there's a lot of things we could talk about here, but I just want to focus particularly on what we think of His law. Uh, you know, one of the most surprising reasons that Jesus actually says for why the Jews failed to recognize him is that they didn't love the law. Earlier in chapter 7, Jesus talks about how, you know, if, if your will is to do God's will, you'll know that my teaching comes from God. And then he turns around and he tells them, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why are you seeking to kill me? And I don't think in that case Jesus is saying, look, we all 
you know, all of you fall short of perfect obedience to God's law. I don't think that's the point. I think what he's saying is you who claim to love God's law are utterly lawless at heart. You who give all this meticulous attention to trying to keep all these commandments to puff yourself up and make you feel superior to other people, you who look at the law as burdensome weights, who look at the law as the bad medicine required to sort of earn your way into God's good graces, at the same time, you Jews are so quick to just set the law aside when it inconveniences you. For example, when they want to kill Jesus. Because at heart, there is this deep lawlessness. And one of the evidences of a person, you know, if we love the Lord, there'll be a love for His law. A love for His law, not because we think, well, I can earn my salvation through the law. No, of course not. But a love for His law because God is the God of all grace who saves us by His grace, but then gives us commandments that are good and right, that teach us the way we should go. And there will be this heartfelt love that says, yes, God is the rightful authority. And what God commands me, I trust, is good and right. There's a delighting in that. And even when we sin and we fail, there's this repentance, this recognition, you know, I shouldn't have done that. I don't want to do that. I want to change. I want to turn. And this grace-filled repentance that is confident of the forgiveness that is ours in Christ. And so as we you know, reflect on this, well, do I love God? Am I different than these Jews who meet God in the flesh and yet try to kill Him? Well, do we love His Son? Do we love His glory? And do we love His law? And if those things are not the case, well, at the beginning, you know, let's be reminded the, the dangers of misidentification and the way that that actually reflects our hearts. But then the other side, for, for many of us, I hope that we hear these things and it is an encouragement. That you say, you know what, I know I am a sinner, but I love Christ. And I love Christ. God's glory, I want Him to get the glory. There is something in me that says, yes, that is good and right. And thirdly, I know I fall short of keeping the law, but I love God's law. And I want to obey His law. Because Christ has loved me and forgiven me, and I know that God is my loving Heavenly Father who's commanded me what to do for my good. So I want to walk in His law. And I pray that God will help me to live in line with His word more and more every day. Right? And those are evidences that God has brought us to Himself. That we know the Lord. That we love the Lord. Uh, so let's be encouraged and let's be spurred on in those things more and more. Knowing that our Savior, Jesus Christ, is the I Am. Uh, he is the one who will most assuredly and most definitely bring to pass all the good that He has promised. As He has said, Unless we believe that He is He, we will die in our sins. But if anyone keeps His word, he will never see death. Praise God. Amen. Let's pray.
Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we praise you because you are the I Am. You are everything that you claim to be. Most of all, you are the one who has redeemed us from our sin. We thank you for that. We praise you for that. We look forward to the day when we will be with you forever um, in the new heavens and the new earth. And we pray that you would help us here and now to live lives that are faithful to you. Amen.